Well, hey, guys, uh, here in the studio, Gangland Wire, as you know, Gary Jenkins. I never say that. I don't know if I need to say that or not. I think everybody knows who I am. Uh, this is going to be another little extra. You know, you guys have, have been both the audio podcast and the the video on uh, uh, YouTube have been so supportive. You made a lot of great comments. I really appreciate it. You know, you guys in the um, uh, audio, the podcast, be sure and go in there and, and give me a little review because it is it helps. And there's no way to review it. Or you, you can give me a thumbs down, I guess, or a thumbs up. You know, make a comment, you know, ask a question. Uh, all that helps. The more interaction I've got helps. You know, the best way you can help this podcast nowadays is to like and subscribe down below on the YouTube and uh, subscribe on the uh, audio and make comments, give reviews on the audio and share it. Tell your friends about it. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy doing this. And I think you guys uh, enjoy listening to me. A lot of you do. Everybody doesn't, but uh, that's okay. Uh, I, I saw a deal on that OC shorts guy. He's an English guy. And that a lot of people that, that listen to me or watch me, they also are one of his fans and, and I said, somebody made a comment about he talked like he had a turd in his mouth. And he came by. I, when people make fun of the way I talk, you know, I got kind of a, what the Easterners would say, hillbilly accent. Uh, uh, you know, I, I just ignore it myself. Sometimes I even delete it if it's too uh, outlandish, but because uh, it just, it, you know, makes me mad. I, I shouldn't, you know, if you got a thin skin, do not get in this business. But anyhow, I really appreciate all you guys out there and even appreciate the ones who make the crappy comments or the may be try to criticize me for, for my delivery or, or my facts or whatever. I try to get the facts right, but anyhow, let's, uh, let's get on. I just saw a little deal in the uh, paper or I'm not in the paper, not my paper in the Chicago paper. I believe it was on uh, one of the uh, Chicago outfit, Facebook pages. I always monitor different uh, mafia Facebook pages, looking for stories and just to see what's going on is interesting stuff. And, and so I, I found out Polly, the Indian Shiro is going to finally get out of the penitentiary. He, uh, Jimmy Marcello, who was the boss at the time, is still in, and I think in Florence ADX in, in Colorado, and will probably will die in there. Uh, Paulie had a sentence of some kind that was long, and and so he is the the next to the last guy to get out of prison that's still alive from the family secrets trial. You know that family secrets trial. It was it was it was more important to really Chicago outfit than the straw man trials, which we had in Kansas city. We're about the skimming from Las Vegas. Um, now the one in Kansas city took down the upper echelon of Kansas city, Chicago, uh, Cleveland and Milwaukee and Milwaukee and Cleveland really never recovered. They had a lot of other problems and didn't have drop something. Uh, had a lot of other problems and, and didn't have that strong of a family in Kansas city has not really exactly recovered, but they still have a small semblance of family. Chicago, it, it hurt them a little bit, but there were other people that moved right on up. Jimmy Marcello moved on up pretty quickly after that. And there were Joey Lombardo. Uh, he went down for a while, but he came back out and, and he was still kind of active during that time and and really only lost Jackie's Ron Iupa and Angela Pietra. Uh, so there were always people 
you know, in the, in the mafia and organization, there's always somebody right below you to come on up. Now, now the family secrets trial was, uh, <laughs> it really hurt Chicago and hurt, took out a lot of people in Chicago and, and really hurt them. Uh, but Polly Shero was an integral part of the outfit, but he had moved on to Phoenix. Now, uh, Polly, the Indian Shiro is called the Indian because he looked kind of like an Indian, I guess. And he was, a, uh, you know, part of a burglary crew and a robbery crew, home invasion crew. He was a hitman. He was an enforcer. There were four businessmen that were all shot up with some kind of a 22 on the north side of Chicago that that had some kind of a, a kind of a scammy kind of alarm business and shiro was uh, the suspect in that i never i never could get to the the bottom of that but those guys that ran that and that were killed were kind of scammy guys so they they got involved with the outfit in some way um now paulie had moved to as i said to be the outfit representative in phoenix arizona now if you want to learn more about the family secrets trial go back and check out my episodes that they were released on june the 6th and the 13th i looked that up they were titled Family Secrets Trial Parts 1 and Part 2. A little different uh, title in uh, YouTube. It was like, uh, did you know Frank Calabrese testified? Did you know Joy Lombardo testified? Both those guys testified in their own defense in that trial. Really interesting uh, uh, podcast that I had a a guy, my friend Jim Casenza, uh, attended that trial and, and he had a great memory and he talked a lot about all the different personalities and what he saw in the trial. Now, Pauly Shiro has been in 20 some years now or more. His sentence is getting close enough that he, he finally is going to start on his way to get out. He's been trying to get out ever since COVID started. He's been in a in the Butler Federal Penitentiary in Butler, North Carolina Federal Penitentiary, which is a, uh, a medical kind of a unit. My friend Steve was in a medical unit up in Rochester and then down at Springfield's their main medical unit. And after COVID hit, Cheryl had his lawyer file a motion to move him out of prison, claiming that that place was a breeding ground, breeding ground for COVID bugs, which they are. Any of those institutions like that, I'd hated to work in one of those when COVID first hit because you didn't know what was going to happen. It would have been really scary to work in one or to be incarcerated in one because uh, it was almost you can't stay away from other people. Now, he uh, he was convicted for being part of a hit team that murdered an Arizona businessman named Emil Vasi. Uh, they feared that Vasi was going to cooperate with law enforcement on a hit that went down out there. And and so, you know, also in that family secrets trial, he was convicted of racketeering, being part of a scheme of racketeering and Rico probably and and in this particular murder. Now, so I thought, well, I'm gonna look up this murder. Who's Emil Bossy and and why did they need to kill him? And he was uh, he was working and living down in Phoenix, Arizona. And Shiro's only participation, as far as I can tell, from the there's a guy that actually did the hit that testified this, Nikki Calabrese. He was a lookout. But you know, if you're gonna be a lookout. If you're going to be the guy driving the getaway car, then you're going to go down just like you're part of the crime. You're part of the murder or whatever. He was working in the Phoenix, Arizona hotel and he organized Las Vegas casino jackets. Oh, oh, interesting. So uh, he knew all the important people in Las Vegas casinos and he was kind of a uh, uh, an outfit 
you know, hanger on or associate or whatever you want to call it. In particular, he knew one of the uh, slots manager at the Stardust named guy named George J. Vandermark. And this was kind of uh, early on in the skimming. This is a little bit before Lefty Rosenthal got such a powerful position in the Stardust. And, and But Vandermark had come up with a scheme to skim from the slots. And it was, uh, he had rigged the scales to misweigh the coins and, and make it look like there was less than what there was. Uh, so they'd skim out the overage of, of what the uh, actual weight between the, the weight that was reported and the, the, the overage, the real weight, and they could skim that off. And then he, he also set up this scheme that he had what they call banks, phantom banks. And, and so then they would put money in a bank. Uh, within the casino, you know, from the tables and then take the money out of that bank that then it would, it was a phantom. It, it just like, it wasn't really reported anywhere. So, uh, you know, it's kind of complicated. I had a guy explain it to me once and I, and I can never remember, but it, 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 needless to say, he was part of Chicago skimming from the Stardust Casino. And as we know, that was huge. That was huge. That was millions of dollars every year. And one day there was a real aggressive young Nevada gaming control board. Actually, he was an auditor. He wasn't even a regular investigator. His name was Dennis Gomes. I talked to Dennis Gomes later on when I started making my movie, my documentary, Gangland Wire, about the skimming from Las Vegas. I found Dennis Gomes. He was working in, in Atlantic City, was trying, he was buying into a casino. He'd spent a whole career in the casino business by this point in time. And I went to talk to him and his, I wanted him to give me some interview, an interview for my movie, but his daughter was writing a book about his life at the time. And, and I don't know, he just did, he didn't really want to cooperate right then. And, and then he died. He had some kind of a heart problem, heart attack and died at kind of an early age by under 60. But Dennis Gomes was a legend in casino investigations back then. Like I said, he was aggressive uh, and he moved on and, and cleaned up some casinos down in the Caribbean and then came to Atlantic City. And, but he, when he made this surprise audit, he exposed this whole scheme and, and he must have, he probably had an informant because he told me, he said, I used to develop informants inside these casinos because he found the rig scales and, and the phantom banks and, and Vandermark, when, when it started coming out, how much he'd been skimming, uh, Chicago realized that he was skimming a lot more than what they were getting. George Vandermark takes off. He's, he's more afraid of Chicago than he is of uh, the government, <laughs> the Nevada Gaming Board. And, and uh, Nevada had been a state charge out there in Nevada at the time until the feds got into it, were able to put the, the mob and interstate and all that into it. And they weren't there at that time. Vandermark flees, flees to Mexico and he just hides out for a while. And then someone murders his son back in Las Vegas. So he comes back to the States and he's hiding out in the Phoenix, Arizona hotel, the Manor, Arizona Manor Hotel, uh, under an assumed name. Well, this guy who becomes part of the hit team that kill, that, that they kill, <clears throat> his name's Emil Vasi. And, and he knew at the time that the outfit was looking for Vandermark and he tipped him off. So he became kind of part of this whole scheme to kill Vandermark too. And, and shortly thereafter, Vandermark 
in that hotel, but somebody sees somebody pushing somebody out in a wheelchair that's covered with a blanket and it will come out later. That was Vandermark and they take him out and bury him in the desert. Uh, they still got like a missing persons thing out on him, but he ain't missing. He's buried in the desert. But after the, they get this all done, they start worrying about Emil Vasse. He's not, you know, he's not a hardened outfit guy. He's just a hanger on, but he was definitely part of it. He set the guy up and, and who knows all what happened that night when they did that. I got a feeling he was part of that too. So they sent their ace hit man and his team, Nick Calabrese, to take care of this problem and part Polishiro being he's down in Arizona. He, you know, he's the man on the scene and he's part of this team helping set up Vandermark and make sure they can get him isolated and get him killed and get him out of there without any witnesses. So then when Nick Calabrese becomes the star witness at the family secrets trial, one of the first ones he does is send Polishiro to jail because for this Emil Vasi and whoever else. I didn't really research whoever else was in it, but that's a little bit about Polly Shiro, kind of what he went down on and, and uh, what kind of guy he was and who he was connected to. You know, he's been in this medical facility. He's had lung cancer. Supposedly he was in remission when he first filed this motion. He's had part of one lung removed. He's 85, 88 years old. He supposedly had a lung collapse recently at that time. He's got COPD, of course, lifetime of smoking and dissolute living. I'm glad I quit all that stuff back in my 30s. He got diabetes. He got heart problems, including arrhythmia. Uh, that's AFib, I think. He's got cataracts. Hell, I got cataracts, man. Just get them taken out. Arthritis, got arthritis. No hemorrhoids. He got hemorrhoids. Those are all the things that he said were wrong with him. And he also claimed that he could had to use a walker if he went any further than 10 feet and a cane when he's just getting around his cell. Uh, you know, they're always going to like exacerbate or blow up their, their things when you're their, their medical infirmities, when they're asking for a medical compassionate release from the penitentiary. Vossi's daughter, you know, they notify victims on this and their relatives, rather. And Vossi's daughter went to that first hearing he had last year, two years ago, whenever the COVID first came up. And he said, you know, we're the victims here. Polly Shiro is only the victim of his own lifestyle and his own actions, you know. And so she resisted letting him out and, and he wouldn't let him out. But now he's come to that point in his sentence that he can't get out. To a halfway house. I'm not sure what halfway house. If, if you know, I make put it in the comments down below. I'm kind of curious what halfway house he's in. Wonder if he'd give me an interview. Probably not. He's a hard case, but I don't know what kind of guy he is. Never know. It never hurts to ask. At least send him a letter. I think he's supposed to be out fully out next April, and he'll be around 90 years old. Uh, you know, he's the last one alive from the family secrets trial. Like I mentioned before, the boss at the time, Jimmy, Jimmy the man, Marcello was uh, in Supermax in Florence, Colorado. These guys, their life of crime really paid off. I, I've often said, you know, if these guys would sit down and look at the money they've gotten and the time they spent in jail and you'd figure out you made maybe 10 cents an hour, 20 cents an hour, maybe a buck an hour even. But I mean, you can do better than that. Just working for the government. 
working, you know, you know, working on a trash truck, I guess it, <laughs> I didn't have those really intense good times. If you work on a trash truck, you don't have all those really intense good times and living high and throwing money around and gambling and hoarding around and drinking and drugging and all that. Off of that, you just got to go to work every day. But Crime for them ended up with not much money per hour and living in a taxpayer-funded, small, uncomfortable cell. Uh, no privacy, no dignity, no personal dignity, you know, eating crap meals. You know, it's just, I, I don't get it, but, you know, that's, uh, I guess people just get into it. Uh, you know, I looked into, as as part of this, I got kind of curious about the family secrets prosecutors and, and who was involved. Now, I'm, I need to take a look at the agents and see who was involved. Maybe I can find one I can talk to. I've sent a, a message out to this one. Marcus Funk was his name. Uh, uh, there's a guy named Mars was the lead prosecutor. Uh, I think he's dead. I think he's deceased now. Uh, Marcus T. Marcus Funk was, is currently in private practice, and I've sent him a message. His white collar crime firm. Uh, I think he's back east now. He was in Colorado and then moved back east. And a little bit I could find out about him, but he was he had an assignment overseas, uh, and and he was just coming back, and he was offered a chance to be part of this trial team. He must be a pretty good lawyer. And so if you got any white collar crime problems, why well, get hold of T. Marcus Funk. He probably would, would be a good guy to defend you. And he was quoted as saying, you know, I, I really wanted this because I got a chance to work with John Scully, who will become a judge, and then Mitch Mars. And Mitch Mars was kind of a rock star prosecutor up in Chicago at the time. You know, and a little bit about the family secrets trial. If you don't know, just an overview. And there was a couple of brothers, Nick and Frank Calabrese Sr., and then there was Frank Calabrese Jr. And Nick Calabrese was really one of Chicago's main hit guys. And he had a small crew that worked with him. They were all part of his brother's crew, Frank Calabrese Sr. And they were bringing in Frank Calabrese Jr. So that's why it became the family secrets trial, because when they finally went to trial, they had enough evidence. They had Nick Calabrese and Frank Calabrese Jr., testify against their brother and father, Frank Calabrese Sr., and the rest of the people that were involved with this crew and on up the mob hierarchy, the outfit hierarchy, and, you know, including Joey Lombardo and, and the boss, Jimmy Marcello. It was a massive case. It, it, you know, it's, it took in their whole career and 40 years of outfit criminal activity and 18 homicides. And it was, it was intense. Go back and listen to my, uh, my interview of Jim Casanza about and family secrets child part one and part two. Uh, I didn't realize this and, and, uh, Jim didn't realize this either during the trial. I know we had one, uh, U.S., uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Marshal that was helping to guard Nikki Calabrese and he was giving out tips to where they might be able to find him so they could kill him. And, and they ended up arresting that Marshal and, and, uh, convicting him of that. So there was a lot of drama. There's even more drama. Turns out that one of the jurors went to the judge and claimed that he had, heard Frank Calabrese Sr. threaten Prosecutor Funk by saying, you're a fucking dead man. Funk had kind of got personal. Now, Funk had kind of got personal with Frank Calabrese Sr. And, and I found this quote from uh, Prosecutor Funk, and he characterized Frank Calabrese Sr. like this. He was cruel, intentionally cruel. He went out of his way to brutalize people. 
He reveled in the power he had. He reveled in his position he had in the outfit. He reveled in the fact that he could decide who lived and who died. And he would never cooperate or atone for his wrongdoings. And he never tried to help rectify the situation like his brother did, like his son is, because they both testified against him. You know, I read another article about Funk. I kept looking into him and I, I learned kind of interesting. He's just like me. When he was a little boy, he wanted to be a cowboy. There's a picture that he keeps of him in a cowboy outfit. Uh, now, we couldn't afford a cowboy outfit. I had kind of cheap ass little gun and gun belt when I was about seven. But we had horses. I lived on the farm and small ranch, whatever you want to call it. And, and we had several horses and we used horses to work cows and 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 I always wanted to be a cowboy, but I didn't really want to grow up. And I don't think Mr. Funk did either grow up to be a cowboy that worked and ranged with cows. That's a lot of hard, stinky, smelly work. Well, I wanted to be a cowboy that carried a gun like in the movies and on the TV shows. You know, I wanted to be uh, wanted dead or alive. Uh, uh, I wanted to be a maverick. I wanted to be one of those guys, Matt Dillon. And, and I can't even think of the rest of them. Uh, I wanted to go after the bad guys with my gun and cowboy hat. Now, I never got the cowboy hat. I never had the horse. I did get the gun. And instead of a Winchester lever action 3030, like the cowboy said, I got a Remington 870 shotgun. And instead of a Colt 45, I had a, a model 59 38 caliber Smith and Wesson, but I had those and, and no horse, but I did have a Plymouth Fury when I first was a policeman. Anyhow, this conviction of these top mob bosses all the way up to the boss, because and then Strongman, we'd already put away one boss, Joey Ayupa, and, and the underboss, Jackie Cerrone, and, and a pretty important guy, Angelo La Pietra. We put away some important guys, but you know, they move right on up. I just keep moving up and taking over, but it really did put a hurt on them and put a real dent in the outfit. And it's, it's kind of got less and less ever since. And, but you know, one of the main reasons it's got less is they lost all that skim money from Las Vegas and all that power that the Teamsters uh, union gave them both access to the pension fund, but access to politicians. You know, you could, you could take a politician, you could help elect uh, a prosecutor and the Teamsters could give them a shitload of money. And then come back around and say, hey, you know, this is a nice boy. Hey, this case here, you know, eh, those are nice guys. You got that Pat Marcy was a fixture, wired into all the Chicago outfit. I mean, wired into all the Chicago prosecutors and the whole, you know, the main prosecutor and city government. And we had some similar things here in Kansas City up until about this time about the 70s and, and, uh, and, and all the major cities did. So the, the, having the Teamsters and the skim money coming in from Las Vegas, taking that power away from them just really, really put a damper on them, made them into more like a street gang and, and just criminals, just not white collar criminals, but just street criminals, you know, burglars and fences and drug dealers and, and that kind of thing. So. Hope you all like this, folks. Don't forget to like and share and give me a review. Watch out for motorcycles. And if you got a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service, be sure and go to the VA website and get that hotline and call that. Or if you've got a friend or relative, call that hotline and ask them, you know, what can you do to help? Thanks a lot, guys.